Welcome to History and Systems Lecture 6, The Emergence of Psychological Science. We are listening to a beautiful Baroque piece with two oboes and strings. It's titled The Arrival of the Queen of Sheba. It's from an oratorio by George Frederick Handel, one of his last oratorios. Premiered in London in 1749, which situates it time-wise right in the middle of our discussion. Uh, the Baroque period spans from 17th century to the 19th century, and that also happens to be the same period of time where we see the emergence of psychological science, so much so that psychology finally gets its own name. So let's jump in. So things start to change in the Western world, really in the whole world during this period. Um, you know, we talked before how you really get the emergence of philosophy and and introspective disciplines that are concerned with uniquely human phenomena once we became agrarian, once we, we stopped the hunter-gathering nomad thing and started to farm. Now we see another change. Um, industrial capitalism starts to supplant agrarian-based economies. Urban life starts to take over farming culture. And I'm going to talk a lot about this, so I won't exhaust it in our discussion today. But you see a huge change in life when people start moving into cities and working at factories, and then it sets up issues for public education, public housing, and particularly in the United States, as we'll see later, um, psychology suddenly has a whole new range of ills to look at, um, and it has this massive effect on clinical psychology. But we're not talking a lot about clinical psychology today. We'll do that in our next lecture. Today we're talking mainly about psychology as a science. And during this period, science is quickly, steadily, surely replacing religion as the primary form of authority in human life. So I had um, I, I took history and systems um, as an undergrad from this magnificent professor, a guy named Terry Blumenthal at Wake Forest University. Um, yeah, you would you'd be enjoying this class so much more if you were teaching it. Um, but I remember uh, a student. He said something like this once: that science, in terms of how we view the world, authority is taking over. And somebody asked, "Well, what if somebody is religious?" And 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 Terry's an atheist, and and he came back pretty quick with, "Well, um, even if you're religious, your your authority in life is probably largely scientific." because if your car breaks, you go to the mechanic. If you get sick, you go to the doctor, that kind of thing. Now, there are exceptions to this for people who are religious, but here's my point. Um, my point is not so much what, what Dr. my old professor said. My point is mainly that we see a shift here where the source of truth and authority becomes science, even for people who have passionate faith for the most part. Again, there are exceptions to this, and we'll actually talk about some of those exceptions. But, but science is, is finally, at this point, is really starting to hold the day um, in terms of what we consider authorita authoritative when it comes to knowledge. So a good example of this is the work of Charles Darwin. We will come back to Darwin again, especially when we're talking about psychoanalysis. Um, but, it, you know, Darwin doesn't occur in a vacuum. This is the heyday of scientific achievements. Um, and... It's a departure from this worldview that was very hierarchical and structured to something that's more organic. 
Um, you know, things things in the medieval worldview are very platonic, and in that sense, they are very hierarchical. They are very ordered. Um, the cosmos is ordered in layers. Um, you've got you've got levels and layers to everything that that are fixed, and this applies to people. You know, people are you know depending on your your station in life. Everybody's everybody's got their spot. Well. Then the science comes in with its messiness and actually says, actually, no, this is the way things work. Things are always evolving. Things are always changing. Things are not fixed. And this, this plays right into this notion of progress that was incredibly, incredibly important to this era and has always been important to, to the modernistic mindset, the, modern, the modernistic frame of knowledge, progress and moving forward. Evolution fits right, right into this because, you know, the, the story of life is the story of progress in an evolutionary mindset. It's natural selection, constantly making things better. This is an ideal that, that affects all of us. Um, if you've ever heard of a company that's got something called continuous quality control to it, um, I'm reaching a little bit with this example, uh, admittedly. But this idea that, that things always need to get better, this is not an eternal idea. And, you know, this is not an idea that exists throughout human history by any stretch. It's really more that, okay, there's a way things are done and you stick with that. Well, science and comes in and, and messes with that. Um, this shifts folks, focuses away from scripture to science. And, and this gives a very different understanding of the world and humanity. Um, this also leads to, and this is something else, again, we'll talk, to, back, we'll talk about in a later lecture, the whole concept of freedom, um, which becomes hugely important in science, in psychology, in economics. Is, is the, that's the clearest example. Out of the work of Adam Smith, economics basically says you have to have free people in a free market. Um, in in order for society to thrive and so freedom progress moving forward and all this stuff and in 1859 darwin releases the origins of the, of the species um and it's 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 very well received um you know there's some scientific criticism as is there is with everything but but Darwin uncovers these basic evolutionary principles that really affect culture and psychology. Leads to even these, these weird things like selective breeding. Um, if you want to know why we have dogs now, like, I don't know, the Boston Terrier and poor things can't breathe, um, and, and the pug, it's because these ideas of, of natural selection extend to breeding and so forth, and people start breeding um, dogs. So that's why we have a bunch of funny-looking dogs um, that now that are not always the healthiest. Okay, I'm going to go down a rabbit hole about dog breeding here, and we shouldn't do that. Um, just get a rescue. That's all I'm saying. In 1871 and 1872, Darwin goes down the road of psychology, um, but his work was more speculative. That's one of the reasons that it's not very well known. Um, it's titled The Descent of Man. It's his most controversial work. Darwin posits some things about sexual selection that were controversial in the, the scientific community. It's not nearly as titillating or fun as it sounds. Um, but the controversy part was somebody wrote an article in a book responding and criticizing his work um, anonymously. 
Uh, and then, no, I'm sorry, there was an anonymous article and then a book and then just went back and forth. Thomas Huxley even got involved in the argument. It's just one of those crazy little fun history rabbit holes that we're not going to go down right now. Um, one of the things that evolution, this emphasis on evolution does, is it, it makes an emphasis on the collection. Um, you know, and again, this is something that we see in, in the West where you have a shift in mentality, at least scientifically, if not economically and, and, and socially, that... You know, the individual organism is not super interesting to, to Darwin. Um, it's just, you know, unless there's some idiosyncratic characteristics, but it's really, natural selection is about the well-being of the group. It's about uh, the species. It's about what is best for the whole group, what kind of traits are, are going to evolve over time to help the group. And so, again, just to emphasize, the world is organic instead of harmonious. And the way I like to think about it, it's, it's messy instead of this very, you know, tiered crystal <laughs> universe that, that Greco-Roman thought put out there. Now, as always, I like to have some balance in these lectures. Um, yes, science is emerging in a wonderful way. And I mean, in all of these, you know, diseases are being cured. Um, stuff that we don't, we don't think about nowadays, like ventilation, <laughs> you know, for, it took them a while to figure out to, to cut a hole in the roof for the fire, um, to cut it, to have a chimney, stuff like that. And so, as I've said in a previous lecture, even if you're a deeply religious person, when you see all these scientific progresses, um, you're going to, you're going to avail yourselves of them. You know, if you find out if there's something that's going to fix your, fix your bellyache, and, and you go down and, and get some pink bismuth or, or whatever. I don't know if they had that at this point. Probably not. But you know what I'm saying. But science is holding the day. But science, as always, made some pretty big blunders. Um, when, I, when I'm doing, you know, watching. I, don't, I try not to participate in social media uh, debates. But when I'm seeing somebody's, you know, usually that I agree with. To saying, hey, you know, science says this. I don't say anything. I'm in the back of my mind, I'm always like, yeah. Science makes lots of mistakes, and, and one of the clear ones is phrenology. Now, this is a lot more fun to do in person, in class. Um, there are several pages of, of notes here, but you're not going to need all of them because a lot of it is a, an exercise we would do. We would actually practice a little phrenology on, on ourselves and on each other, and, and it was all kinds of fun. You can do this, of course, at home by yourself. Just just look at the, the, the diagram there. Not a diagram. What is it? It's a, the image on um, page 28 of your notes. And you can kind of see all of these different areas that you're supposed to feel in your head for phrenology, for uh, a phrenological, is that how you say it? Diagnosis. Uh, Franz Gall, one who, who invented phrenology, believed that you could figure out something about something, someone's personality, intelligence, and even their morality by the contours of their skull. So take a few minutes if you want. You could do this with your friends and loved ones and engage in a little pseudo-psychology and have some fun feeling, um, you know, along the contours of one's skull and stuff. Um, and apparently the, if there's a bulge there, then you have a lot of whatever thing it is. And if there's a divot, you know, if there's, there's a depression, you're low. And if it's in the middle, you're fine. Yeah, just high-minded scientific stuff. Um, Something to note about phrenology, since we can't do our fun little exercise, um, some things to, to think uh, about. Um, phrenology, like so many 
scientific models of psychology during the time was inherently racist. Um, it, you know, basically, if you have the skull of someone who is not white, uh, you're going to have more problems. Uh, there's if I'm not necessarily recommending this movie, but if you like Quentin Tarantino, the the movie Django, there's there is actually a scene, a very violent and terrible scene, um, that talks about phrenology and talks about it and gives an an example of of a racist um, use of phrenology. And so this is just an example of how science is always tripping over its feet. Um, we get into trouble in psychology when we know a little bit about something. <laughs> when we know a little bit about something, um, boy, we run with it. Um, and, and I could get on a little bit of a soapbox about this, talking about, I don't know, some things going on today about neuroscience, that kind of thing. Probably best I don't record them. We can, we can talk about them in our discussion groups. So we're going to leave phrenology behind and really get into the meat of the emergence of psychological science during this era. And so we're going to start with talking about mental philosophy and its contrast to psychophysics. If you took a psychology class, an intro psych class, sometime in the 1800s, really actually even in probably pretty well into the early 20th century in a lot of places, if you took a psychology class, um, it would most likely be taught by a member of the clergy or a philosophy professor. And you'd, you'd hear about some things we've already talked about. You'd, you'd hear about Kant, Descartes, Mill, um, you know, theories of vitalism, um, which we'll get to a, a little bit later, um, and all these theories about mental life. Um, but at the same time, you've got all these physiologists, physicists, and biologists that are doing, they're basically starting to do psychology. They don't know it yet, <laughs> but they are. The first psychologists were not psychologists, so to speak. The first psychologists were physiologists, generally. The first some people who took the title of psychologists were physiologists, and then they, they invent the dis discipline of psychology. So mental philosophy, this more philosophical approach to psychology, which I still believe is, is a, a valid and worthwhile uh, approach, but it stands in contrast to psychophysics. And, and in the 17th century, this is where we get psychology and science more interested in sensation and perception. And as with everything, there were reasons for that. This didn't just, there weren't just some, some dudes in a lab and said, hey, let's, let's you know, Let's start talking about it, whether somebody can see a light or not in a dark room. They, it, there was actually a practical use to this that, that was emerging in huge ways. Um, when sea travel first began, it was dangerous. That's why it was done. It was mainly exploratory. You didn't go very far. Um, it, you know, when, because it was just so dangerous and navigation was so difficult. Um, you know, imagine having no real way to navigate on an ocean, you know, and how quickly you would get lost. Um, yeah, and so we've got all this, this, these advances in astronomy and physics coming out, and it doesn't take long for the folk wisdom of navigating by the stars to then intersect with the practice of astronomy, but then brings up another issue, okay? If we're using, remember, astronomy at this time is they have telescopes and so, but it's all it's all visual. Okay, we actually use radio telescopes now. I could talk forever. My, no, excuse me, my son could talk to you forever about this. Um, but my point is is that visual 
sensation, visual perception was crucial for accurate navigation by sea. You had, you know, and this becomes especially important when you're looking at the stars. I know. I've done a lot of it with my son. And getting an accurate visual picture of, of a star is influenced by a host of variables. And at the top of the list is the sensation and perception of the individual. And so this becomes really important. It's like we have to navigate by sea. We have to do it accurately. So to do that, we have to look at the stars because if we get lost, we're going to lose a lot of money and a bunch of people are going to die. So we have to figure out how to, if we're going to look at the stars with the bare human eye and navigate that way, if we're going to pay attention to the sun, that kind of thing, um, there's, we have to have this focus on sensation and perception. Um, I'm going to briefly mention um, a th a three seminal scientists in this area. Um, each one really deserves their own lecture. We just don't have the time. We have to, to jump past them real quick. Uh, Galvani, you've heard of the galvanic skin response. Um, and basically, Galvani discovered that, that nerves were somehow electrical in nature, that you could use electricity to stimulate a nerve. Did huge things for... Um, studying and treating um, disorders of the nervous system and just learning more about how the, our, our skin um, sensation, physical sensation, works. Paul Broca, most of you should, this should, name should sound familiar. He discovered the speech center on the third frontal convulsion of the left cerebral, cerebral hemisphere. Your Broca's area helps you produce speech. So again, think about how big this is for the time. Actually identifying not just that the brain is responsible for speech, but that there's a specific spot on the brain that produces speech. You know, in, in the 1800s, this, this is a huge finding. Um, Helmholtz discovered that nerve impulses travel at 90 feet per second. They're pretty quick. Um, and they tend to be all or nothing, like nerves fire or, or they don't. And again, in, in terms of helping us understand the central nervous system, these are all huge findings. But when we're talking about psychology and the emergence of psychology, we, we really need to start with psychophysics and Weber and Fechner. Ernst Weber came up with something known as the law of the just notable, noticeable difference, or J&D, um, it also gets called the, the Weber fraction or the Weber ratio a lot. So if you can see the, the image here on page 33 of your notes, um, it's delta I, I means intensity, over I equals K, a constant in German. Um, I'm going to explain to you exactly what this means by now. So, um, and if you're in your car, listen to this, don't try this at home. Don't try this in your car. Wait till you get home. Um, so... If you put, if you take a subject and you put a weight in their hand, let's say that you put a, um, a one pound weight, okay, and then we put another one pound weight in the other hand, okay, we're, we're statistically partialing out differences for strength between hands, stuff like that. Um, we're just going to assume that sensation is the same in both hands. So put one pound of weight in one hand, put one pound of weight in the other. Now, here's my question. How much weight do I need to add to one hand before the person says, let's say I'm putting more weight in my right hand. Um, the weight in my right hand is heavier than my left hand. When do they notice that, okay? 
And here is the absolutely crazy thing Weber found out. People trip over the importance of this in intro psych, so I really kind of want to hammer it home at how huge this is. Um, so I've got one pound of weight um, in my left hand, one pound in my right hand. I keep adding weight into the right hand until I notice a difference, and it seems that it has to. I need two pounds of weight. I, this is probably this is not true. I'm just using this because it's an easy example. Um, so I've got two pounds of weight, and then I say, ah, now I've got more weight. Um, in my right hand now that we've reached two pounds. So now I know that the difference for someone to feel a weight between one pound and, and, and from one pound is you need to add another pound, two pounds. So now here's the next question. All right, let's say that then I take the subject and I put three pounds in each of their hands. How, and so then I'm going to add weight again to the right hand until the subject notices that there's more weight, what they call the just noticeable difference, okay? This time, how much do you, so I've got, start with three pounds in the left hand how, and three pounds in the right hand. How much weight do you think is going to have to be my right hand before the subject notices a difference? If you guessed six pounds total, nice work. Uh, because there's a constant. Think about this. What Weber finds out is that that sensation and perception behave lawfully, behave mathematically. Let that sink in for a second, okay? We're talking about an organic process, a very, you know, that's <laughs> made up of all these mushy cells and, and, and receptors and all this other stuff, but it behaves in a lawful way. Remember back when we were talking about Pythagoras? And one of, when Pythag and, and Plato and Socrates looked at Pythagoras and his work to say, look, human beings are tuned to the universe in a lawful mathematical way, whether it's because they can naturally figure out something like Pythagorean theorem, or if it's because we only respond positively to musics that are at certain mathematical intervals, but, and, or now, the, the differences, the perceptual differences that we have, it follows a mathematical law. Our perception, sensation, behave lawfully. Now, I want you to just think about how, how massive that was back in this time. And, it's, and it really, for one person, it's about to get even more massive. And that person is, is Gustav Theodor Fechner. Um, Fechner's life is incredibly interesting. Very, very devout Christian, um, which actually figures directly into to his work. So he wants to expand on Weber's work. And, and he basically ends up, he's a physicist, but he invents psychophysics. Um, Fechner studied the sun and made him go blind, which, God bless them, they didn't know that was hap would happen. We know that now. But when you study the sun and you're not careful, you could go blind. So he goes home, lives with his parents, sinks into a very deep depression. But his sight gradually starts to return. He sees this very understandably as a miracle from God. If you are... A physicist, if you're a scientist uh, in, in this era, if you're a scientist in you know the 19th century, your vision, especially if you're studying the sun and things like that, your vision is everything. And so he thought his life was over, but his slight, his slight, his sight starts to return, and 
he just sees this as a miracle from God and he wants to return the favor as much as he can and he dedicates his life to discovering lawful relationships for the mind. For Fechner, this is actually glorifying God. For Fechner, this is like this is proof uh, of what we would call intelligent design maybe now. So he is out to develop this new science, psychophysics, and he wants to determine a precise relationship between the physical and psychic realms. So, but he doesn't just do this in a vacuum. He doesn't just, you know, his sight doesn't come back and he says, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to discover lawful relationships with the senses. No, he's working off, he's coming off the work of Weber because Weber has, has already shown people that senses behave in a lawful way, blown everybody's minds, and now Fechner's like, no, I'm going to discover more and more and more. So he looks at sensation and comes up with Fechner's law. Now Fechner's law is is subtly different than Weber's law. The easiest thing, the easiest way to remember it um, that might come up someday again in your life is that Fechner's law is about sensation whereas Weber's law is about perception. Um, it's a, Weber's law is, is technically about discrimination um, but it, that's a perceptual faculty. Fechner's going to look more at, at straight sensation. Um, sensation grows in proportion to the stimulus intensity. Basically it means that the, the, the more the stimulus grows um, the you know the the more we're the, we're, we're going to experience it as intense. Um, the the typical kind of example of this is a completely dark room. So you're gonna so basically the, a question is is then how how much rather than then this isn't a difference detection. This isn't a perceptual difference detection. This is sensation. This is do you see something or not? So if I'm in a completely dark room, let's say we buried it, you know. 300 feet underground, no light can get in there. And then we gradually start to introduce light, just a little bit at a time, until, let's say, I don't know, whatever measurement we're, we're, we're using, lumens, I don't know, I don't know how to measure light. Um, but let's say it gets, you know, when one lumen, um, then you can see the light. Well, it's the same thing, then how, you know, how much does it have to increase before you can see that it's increased, before you detect that, that the stimulus is actually brighter, that kind of thing. Um, so Fechner's law is R, which I think that, that it's R because in German light is like lights or something like that. I'm not sure about that. Um, but it's K log S. So basically, um, a constant logarithm times the stimulus. Just, it means that, that, that sensation grows proportionally. That's really the, the key thing uh, to remember about that. Um, the thing we know, though, is that Fechner's law seems to only really hold for vision. Loudness, physical touch, that kind of thing, don't seem to behave as, as lawfully, which kind of begs the question, you know, methodologically, you know, do they behave lawfully and we haven't really figured it out yet, or are there just variables that we haven't accounted for? My money's kind of on that. Dr. Brown would be a good person to ask about this kind of thing if you're interested, because this is not my area nearly as much as his. Just a, another comment um, about psychophysics before we move on to Wundt. This, as I mentioned in the first lecture, this is the area of psychology that, that really satisfies the Hempelian definition of science. Um, you know, this is where you can really say the nomological deductive model works. 
that we have a consistent explanation for things because you know when it, and I could give half a dozen examples off the top of my head of how sensory psychology really does behave in a lawful way um, and this puts psychology on the map as a science it's no longer just you know philosophical it's like no we can we've got data that points to mathematical lawful relationships between physical physical stimuli and sensation and perception I'm going to split this lecture into two parts so I will come back to you in the next lecture and we'll talk about Wundt and Titchener and structuralism and a few other things I'm going to leave you with my favorite piece of Baroque music it's a concerto for mandolins in C major by Vivaldi you should check this piece out on YouTube if you get a chance it's pretty cool to see basically a small orchestra of mandolins playing a piece of music so thank you as always for your kind attention